0: All we're asking for is a vote. If that's a terrorist action, then I guess we're all terrorists.
1: You said it, Congressman, not me.
2: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling
1: that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Let me us to the right Here I am,
2: stuck in the middle with you Yes, stuck in middle
1: From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM, people-powered radio in L.A. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM, KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM, Queso in Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania on 93FM, WLRI in Lancaster. In Hawaii on 88.5FM, KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio on WGRN, 94.1FM in Columbus. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950, KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And yes, streaming coast to coast and around the globe on The Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation Radio or not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville Detour Talk in East Tennessee, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik blanketing planet Earth 5 days a week. This is the broadcast recently named one of the top 10 thrill rides in the Nation by the Travel Channel. Did you, did you know
2: that, Desi Doyle? <laughs> I, I, I didn't.
1: You didn't know? That's well, a surprise. Now you do. Hey, aren't we supposed to be getting to those slow summer news days when there's nothing really going on? And when does that start happening, Desi? Yeah, I,
2: I'm ready for that any day now, I, but uh, I, I think that they are a mythological, a lie.
1: It, well, they, they didn't used to be. I blame Cindy Sheehan. And uh, the reason for that is you may remember the uh, the gold Star mother who who lost her uh, son in Iraq. She uh, held a protest back in 2005 in the middle of the summer, in the high heat of summer, back when it used to be the slow times when all everybody in the news business went on vacation. Congress was out. Nothing was going on. Well, uh, since then, since 2005, I don't remember a slow news summer. It's been nothing but crazy ever since. So that's why I blame uh, Cindy Sheehan. We've got a lot of breaking news uh, for you today, including two big U.S. Supreme Court rulings. One is a very big blow to the Obama administration's immigration policy. And another, and this one is actually very surprising, this was a surprising win for advocates of race-based affirmative action admission policies at public universities. We'll be joined shortly by constitutional law and U.S. Supreme Court expert Ian Milheiser to discuss both of those opinions handed down today. Uh, Also, uh, speaking of bad news for the Obama administration in court, uh, Desi Doyen, you'll be with us for the Green News Report a little bit later in which we've got a federal judge, some bad news for the Obama administration concerning their fracking policies, yep. uh, fracking rules. So uh, more bad news for the Obama administration there, although some good news for those of us out here in California where uh, it has been announced that the last remaining nuclear plant in the state will be shutting down.
2: Well, that's uh, good news and bad news, well, depending on your perspective, but we'll have to talk about that later. Well, we'll
1: talk about that, and, uh, well, the, the good news of it closing down, at least in my opinion, uh, is somewhat mitigated by the fact that... Uh Uh, The bad news is it will take forever to actually shut it down. These plants never actually close. So we will have that and more in the Green News Report coming up later. But we've had so much breaking news uh, that came in after we put together our latest Green News Report, including a report out of... Uh Southern Cal is this uh, Santa Monica this uh, new uh, crude oil spill?
2: No, this uh, this new California oil pipeline spill it's right. in Ventura, which is Ventura north County. of Los Angeles. It's between Santa Barbara and Los Angeles who for those who are familiar with the state. Um it spilled about uh, the, the initial report was that it spilled quite a bit.
1: 210,000 is what uh, 210,000 gallons of crude oil was the initial report.
2: Right, and that has uh, has since been revised to only 29 9,000. So a considerable 10 times less. A considerable and less
1: Unusual amount. that it's gone down because usually they seem to lowball it in the first announcements and then we come out, oh, it was actually 10 times higher. Yes,
2: yeah, so in this case it was great that they were wrong to start with because so far, that's much we'll better. So far, we'll see. So yeah. far, yes. And so it's, uh, it's been contained. It's in a particular kind of gorge that has a, uh, a culvert built into it that has actually contained the oil. They've stopped the oil leak. It is uh, by a Colorado-based pipeline owner, Crimson, which is a different Pipeline owner from the one that spilled on the Santa Barbara beach a year ago, the Crimson Pipeline spill, which is what happened uh, today. Um, they've had uh, 10 spills involving pipeline corrosion since 2006, um, but they say that there doesn't appear to have been a recent inspection by federal inspectors on this pipeline, but um, we'll see. And did
1: it spill into, is it into the water, is No, it has not made it to the beach, it has
2: not made it to the water at all, but they said that that all seems to be contained and everybody seems to be okay and they're in cleanup operations right now.
1: Okay, well there's some bad news and some good news. Uh, We'll keep our eye on that as well. We're keeping our eye on the Brexit vote on whether Great Britain will choose to leave the European Union. That vote, uh, the polls have just closed before we go to air here today. Uh, the uh, the leader of the U.K. Independence Party, uh, the the which has been leading the effort to leave the European Union, to have Great Britain leave the Euro- European Union, tells Sky News just minutes ago that it looks like Remain will edge it, he said. Remain in the European Union, he says, that uh, the Leave side has lost. We will see. Once they, you know, actually bother to count the votes. Uh, but uh, climate change actually comes into this story as well, incredibly enough. Uh, Eric Holthouse, meteorologist for, um, who is he with? Slate. Slate, thank you. Uh, he's reporting that flash flooding across London today may determine the fate of the entire European continent because apparently it's gotten so bad. Commuters have had to uh, scramble to get to the polls in time um, amidst chaos on the rail system, which was uh, shut down in part due to flash flooding. So climate change strikes again in places that you don't think it might uh, come into play. Many were concerned they, they're just not going to be able to vote in the EU referendum before the uh, before the polls closed at 10 p.m. That's uh, 5 p.m. on Thursday, Eastern Time. So climate change... Uh,
2: crops up in the weirdest places
1: Don't it? Uh, and one of the weird places It's also cropping up Although I suppose this isn't so weird Is in China Where now severe weather Including a very rare tornado Has killed 78 at this hour?
2: Yeah, this is kind of crazy Um, I did not know this But apparently the United States Is really the only place in the world Where tornadoes are frequent So it is rare to have tornadoes They do happen But it is rare to have them in and in, uh, in China And other parts of the world they said uh, 78 people were killed by this tornado and 500 or so were injured mm. by these tornadoes, uh, flash flooding, extreme weather with storms. Uh, it, it's it's quite serious.
1: Speaking of uh, quite serious extreme weather and climate change and the problems with oil, uh, just weeks after the major derailment, ...of the uh, Oregon oil train. You remember that. In Mosier, Oregon, it spilled 42,000 gallons of Bakken crude into the Columbia River Gorge, forced uh, the evacuation of hundreds of residents and schoolchildren. Just weeks, three weeks after that fiery accident, Union Pacific has now announced that it's going to resume sending oil trains through the Columbia Gorge. What could possibly go wrong? They had temporarily stopped their uh, shipping oil by rail through those tracks, although they had resumed shipping other cargo just days after the incident, even before the rail cars had been cleared away. Following that uh, derailment on June 3rd, Oregon Governor Kate Brown had called for a temporary moratorium on oil train traffic through the Columbia Gorge until the rail safety could be ensured, but uh, that doesn't look like it's happening. She has reiterated those concerns in light of the news that oil shipments will restart sometime within the next few days. Uh, In the Senate, uh, Senator Ron Wyden and Jeff Merkley uh, have joined uh, their governor's call for a temporary moratorium, Requesting that the United States Federal Rail Administration halt oil train shipments until a full investigation into that derailment has been conducted. Preliminary results of that in, in uh, results of the investigation into that derailment have found that the incident was most likely caused by broken screws along the tracks. I knew someone had a screw loose here. <laughs> Uh, Safety inspectors had failed to detect those loose screws and uh, Union Pacific had conducted a full inspection of the tracks, including the screws, just weeks before the derailment, which is very disturbing because it means that this could happen anywhere, anytime and it would not be detected. So even with safer tank cars, lower train speeds and everything else that had been in play and the uh, frequent rail inspections, These problems are still happening. These uh, oil bombs, these train bombs could go off at any time, anywhere in the country.
2: Uh, Yeah. And just to be clear, the uh, federal government has said that Union Pacific is entirely at fault for this because it's their responsibility to maintain the track.
1: Well, okay. It's their responsibility. But when does it become the U.S. government's responsibility to say, okay, this needs to stop? I mean, it just needs to stop. How many people do we just wait until a few hundred people get killed in a small town as these oil like bombs are going Like happened
2: in the... lac yep. in uh, Ontario yep. a couple of years ago. 48 yep. people died.
1: Yep. Suddenly I had this image that we're going to re- be reporting that at some oh, point I on hope this you're show. Wrong. I, I hope, hope you're I wrong. am wrong, too. But I'm usually not. Meanwhile, Volkswagen has agreed to pay more than $10 billion uh, to settle emissions claims over their cheating, emissions cheating scandal, where they uh, set it up so that the computers would show one thing when the computers knew they were being tested, and another thing when they were actually, when the cars were actually being used out in the open. And that's something that I've tied back to voting machines, which can be tested On, uh, you know, let's say the day before elections to show that they're working well, and then on Election Day, they can be programmed to do something entirely different. Um, (laughs) In this case, uh, in the Volkswagen case, uh, some... uh Owners may get up to, uh, well, $5,100. In some cases, they could receive up to $10,000 and a buyback of their car. Separately, Volkswagen is expected to pay more than $4 billion for uh, environmental remediation efforts. And they still face U.S. litigation and investigations over similar allegations arising from some 85,000 diesel-powered vehicles with three-liter engines. Apparently, this uh, uh, these settlements will uh, will regard those with uh, is it two-liter engines? I think yeah, two-liter engines. Uh, And the Justice Department is separately conducting a criminal probe of Volkswagen over the emissions-cheating scandal. So that is uh, ongoing. That is breaking. Um, Do I have anything else? Okay, yeah, now we get to the breaking news in the U.S. House. (laughs) Oh, man, uh, which we covered yesterday on this program with uh, Congressman... um, Congressman Ted Deutsch was here to talk about this uh, really unprecedented move in the U.S. House where they do not have a filibuster like they do in the U.S. Senate, uh, which allows the minority in the U.S. Senate to basically uh, bring things to a standstill until... Whoever that senator is gets their way, and it doesn't have to just be the minority. It can be the majority as well, can filibuster. Um, But in the House, there is no such device until the Democrats essentially invented one yesterday, led by Congressman uh, John Lewis, the civil rights icon, who said, you know what, let's do a sit down. Let's uh, sit in. Let's do a 60s style sit in to force Republicans to at least allow us to debate and vote on measures for gun safety following the Orlando massacre just weeks ago. Republicans in the in the U.S. House have brought forward no legislation. They have allowed no legislation concerning guns since that incident. Over in the U.S. Senate, they were able to get some votes that didn't end up successfully, but they were at least able to get some votes because of uh, the 15-hour filibuster last week by um, uh, Connecticut Democratic Senator Chris Murphy. But in the House, no such thing. So they had to invent one, and invent one they did. And they basically uh, commandeered the floor with a sit-in. And this went on, in fact, as Congressman uh, Deutsch said it would, it went all night long. And now, only now, it has been canceled because uh, it has been ended, at least for now. The House Democrats have ended it after 25 and a half hours because basically Paul Ryan, the, US, uh, the Speaker of the U.S. House, said, well, that's it. We're going home early. We're going home early for the 4th of July weekend. Week. In- actually, I don't know how long. They're off it's for several weeks. It's a pretty long break, weeks, I think, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, for their vacation. We'll just end it early. Democrats had been shouting, no bill, No break. Well, it looks like the Republicans took a break anyway, and there are no indications that the Republicans who control the House that they have met any of the Democrats' demands. Democrats had wanted votes on bills to strengthen background checks and uh, barring firearm sales to people on the government's no-fly list. Both of those policies are widely supported by the American people, both uh, Democrats and Republicans alike. Um, And yet... The, uh, the Republicans won't even allow a vote on it. Congressman John Larson, one of the leaders of the uh, sit-in movement, uh, reported, and, and my apologies for the audio here, because once uh, the sit-in happened, the C-SPAN cameras went off, Republicans ordered them to stay off, and all the coverage was thanks to... Apps like Periscope and streaming video on uh, Facebook. Anyway, Congressman John Larson uh, reported what was going on while the sit in was happening. Uh, he reported what was going on over on NRA, National Rifle Association, radio.
0: Here's the news comment The NRA radio show compares participants in Representative John Lewis's gun violence sit in to criminals and terrorists. Does that firm up your determination to stand on this floor? Yes. Yes. For a body that is held hostage, a group of individuals that won't even allow us to vote to call John Lewis a terrorist? Because he's getting in the way. All we're asking for is a vote. If that's a terrorist action, then I guess we're all terrorists.
1: That was Congressman John Larson. We're all terrorists, I guess. Apparently so, according to uh, the Republicans. If you listen to them, uh, we'll get to that in one moment. But there was a point last night, uh, just after 10 p.m., when the Republicans actually came back into session in the middle of this sit-in, and it was rather extraordinary. I wanted to play more of that. I don't think we'll have time, but I'll play just a few minutes of this. Paul Ryan came out, opened back uh, the House, gaveled it back into session, and started doing business on a completely unrelated measure while the uh, Democrats were yelling and screaming to have a vote. No bill, no vote, everything else Um It was just amazing, and again, it's hard to hear, uh, but give it a listen. You can hear Paul Ryan trying to conduct House business while there was absolute chaos and pandemonium on the floor from Democrats demanding a vote.
3: On the dignity and the decorum of this institution to which we all belong. For what purpose does the gentleman from Kentucky, Mr. Rogers, seek recognition? Pursuant to the order of the House of June 8, 2016, the unfinished business is further consideration of the veto message of the president on House Joint Resolution 88. The clerk will report the title of the joint resolution. House Joint Resolution 88, joint resolution disapproving the rules by the Department of Labor relating to the definition of the term fiduciary. The question is, will the House on reconsideration pass the joint resolution the objections of the president to the contrary notwithstanding, the gentleman from Minnesota, Mr. Klein, is recognized for one hour. I move the previous question. The gentleman from Minnesota yields back. The question is on ordering the previous question. Those in favor say aye. Those opposed say no. The opinion to the chair, the ayes have it. Gentleman from Minnesota. A recorded vote, a recorded vote is requested. Those favoring a recorded vote will rise. A sufficient number having risen, a recorded vote is ordered. Members will record their vote by electronic device.
1: That was that was some of the uh, madness that was going on in the house. That went on for a few minutes, and then once again, and they gaveled it to a vo- uh, to a vote over something or other. Then they went back on recess, and the protest continued by Democrats all night long for 25 hours. And I want to say good on C SPAN for rebroadcasting. The uh, the Periscope video that uh, Democrats were taking from the House floor there during the House sit-in, good on C-SPAN uh, for playing that, for rebroadcasting that video and for continuing their mission, C-SPAN's mission, to keep the electorate informed. They were not happy that uh, Republicans ordered those cameras turned off. Uh, also... Credit to uh, Congressman Ted Deutsch. Uh, He was on the show yesterday. He said that absolutely he was willing to stay there all night long. And in fact, sure enough, I checked back in around 4 a.m. Eastern time and there was Ted Deutsch giving a a speech uh, on on this. He was there from the beginning. And by the way, at 4 a.m., so was Nancy Pelosi, leader of the Democrats. And uh, no due, you know, all due respect, but she's no spring chicken. And so as she was up at 4 a.m. in D.C. carrying on and giving speeches, um, first uh, Ryan shut down the cameras, says Donna Brazile. First Ryan shut down the cameras, then he shut down the opposition, then he just shut down the House entirely. And that is where we stand with the House shut down. Whether they will, uh, whether Democrats will bring this back up after the recess, after the uh, July 4th vacation, that remains to be seen. In the meantime, Republicans have uh, called this. Who is this? Steve King of Iowa said that I've had it with the gun grabbing Democrats and their sit in. Anti-Second Amendment jihad. Yes, he called it an anti-Second Amendment jihad, and he called them gun-grabbing Democrats, despite the fact that we're talking about closing a background check loophole and maybe disallowing a suspected terrorists of buying weapons. There is no gun-grabbing going on. But that doesn't matter. Facts, I guess, don't matter if you're a Republican trying to avoid even having a debate and a vote on this. Frankly, I thought it was great. I think it helped expose the Republicans for their unwavering support for the for the NRA and against the lives and wishes of the American people. But has this now set a new precedent in the U.S. House that the Democrats will come to regret later on? Have they invented a new way to filibuster in the U.S. House that Republicans will be all too happy to take advantage of next time they are in the majority? We'll see. And will this Occupy-style sit-in continue uh, once Congress returns from its now extra-long July 4th break? I guess we will find out. A lot going on uh, today, this week, this summer, uh, including at the U.S. Supreme Court, and we'll get back to that right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. All right, welcome back to the broadcast on a very busy news day. It was a very busy news day uh, at the Supreme Court today with two major decisions coming down, uh, at least in part. One of them, a a, a big surprise, uh, frankly, uh, a, a case concerning affirmative action, uh, race-based selection, uh, at least in part, of, uh, of students at the uh, University of Texas. It was thought that this would be struck down, but uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy came around, it looks, to the right side, at least for now, And uh, but a, a bigger disappointment, certainly for families of immigrants. Immigrants and their families and their friends and for the Obama administration, who was hoping to give relief to undocumented immigrants and the families of children who came over uh, many years ago uh, through no fault of their own, who are allowed for now to stay in this country, Uh, their families would have also been allowed to stay under an Obama administration policy that was announced with uh, much fanfare a couple of years ago and uh, to much hatred from folks on the right who didn't want to see this policy move forward, who felt that the President of the United States did not have the uh, uh, the authority to make this decision. Well, now it looks like, I, I don't want to say the Supreme Court agreed, with those critics of the policy because they ended up tying here. But in effect, in tying over this, that means the lower court ruling will stand. And the lower court ruling in this case, Texas v. United States, has determined that, in fact, the uh, the president of the United States does not have the authority to issue this ruling. In a statement from uh, Familia Latina Unida Sin Fronteras, the response was not surprising, quote, It does not seem fair that families must move an entire nation just to work hard and raise their children in the ways of the Lord. And yet it seems that is what we are asked to do. That was the response of the group of undocumented families with U.S. children who have been fighting for the last 15 years to win the right to keep their families together when they had heard that the Supreme Court failed to lift the lower court block that was placed on President Obama's executive order. The court's 4-4 non-decision in this case leaves the Texas lower court order in place and continues the nation's paralysis on immigration reform, as they describe it. It also places the fate of millions of families in the outcome of the November national elections. Because the next president, indeed, it looks like now, will be the one to name the uh, the ninth justice th- to the Supreme Court that could break this tie. Joining us to talk about both of these cases now is Ian Milheiser, our old friend. He's a constitutional law expert, editor of Think Progress Justice, whose writings have appeared in the New York Times, L.A. Times, U.S. News, and everywhere else. His first book, published last year, is Injustices: The Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the afflicted Ian Melheiser welcome back to the broadcast sir Good to be here. Thank you so much. Always great to have you here to try to make sense of uh, of the senseless, let's say. I'm trying to right. figure out. We've got uh, two cases breaking here. I'm hoping you can shed light on both of them. Let's start with the uh, less-than-good news before we get to the uh, much better news. Uh, in this case, Texas v. United States. Well, yep. give us the—it uh, was a one-line uh, decision here and not uh, not all that much of a surprise? Yeah, I
4: mean— it's- very unfortunate that, uh, that this decision came down in this particular way. Like you said, it was just a one-sentence order saying that the court was evenly divided mm-hmm. on uh, whether or not these programs were legal. And the problem with that is that if they had actually produced an opinion, at least that opinion might have communicated to the administration what could be done to cure whatever defect the conservative justice saw with the, with the immigration program. Um Because there was a lot of different legal theories thrown about. I mean, one of the plaintiff's legal theories basically hinged on the fact that the administration used two words to describe it, and if they had picked two different words, then it might have been okay. Um, so it's really, uh, you know, even though, you know, the good news is that because this is an even split, it means that there's no precedential value to this. It means that when a knife justice is confirmed, this can be relitigated over again. But the bad news is that, um, until there's that knife justice, um, the, the program is sort of at the mercy of, uh... is is at the mercy of some lower courts that are Mm -hmm. very hostile to immigration.
1: Now, this uh, this decision does not affect uh, the broader uh, uh, policy of the Obama administration concerning DREAMers, kids that came over here with their parents uh, who might have been undocumented immigrants, but they were young. The kids were young, through no fault of their own. They are not endangered here, right? That DREAMers program is still in effect. Is that correct? Right. So who? So yeah.
4: Okay. So there's two different programs at issue here. Um, the first program is called DACA, um, Deferred Action for Children for mm-hmm. Childhood Arrivals, and um, DACA um, was implemented initially implemented in, uh, in in 2012. It primarily serves. Young people who came over here as children mm-hmm. um and often these are people with college degrees or military service or some 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 other great you know mm-hmm. impressive contributions to the united states um DAPA is the other is the other program at issue here daPA is deferred action for parents of Americans and as the name implies, it primarily serves the parents of um of uh, U.S. citizens or people who are lawful permanent residents. Mm -hmm. The thing that was challenged in this lawsuit was two things. It challenged DAPA in its entirety and it challenged DACA, but only an expansion of DACA Mm -hmm. that was announced in um, November of of 2014. Mm -hmm. Um, Original DACA was not challenged at all. So the bad news is that immigrants who, had, who thought they were going to get relief under DACA right. or under expanded DACA um, are not going to be able to get it, at least until there's a ninth Justice who can, over, who can um, uphold the program. Um, the, the, good news, the good news is that people who already had, were benefiting from the DACA program, this order is not going to impact them.
1: Now, in 2012, uh, you write over at Think Progress, Ian Milheiser, uh, in Arizona mm-hmm. v. United States, the court reiterated the executive branch's primacy on questions of immigration right. enforcement. Basically, uh, Justice Kennedy had written in that case that a principal feature of the removal system, the deportation system, is the broad discretion uh, that is exercised by immigration officials who are directed by the president. So, what changed uh, as you see it between 2012, 2012 and uh, and 2016 on this matter.
4: Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, going into oral arguments, I was pretty optimistic that this case would go would go well for the program mm-hmm. because of uh, Kennedy writing that opinion and Roberts joining it. Um, what you have to understand about this case, like, so what the the uh, administration did mm-hmm. was it didn't just say like. Oh, we're just going to wave our hand and give a whole bunch of benefits to to a whole bunch of undocumented immigrants. They actually did several things here. So the first thing that they did is, you know, the term is deferred action, but uh, the first thing that they did is that they just said we're not going to bring enforcement actions against certain people. Um, It's something called prosecutorial discretion. It's something that the executive branch unquestionably has the power to do for the same reason that a prosecutor can decide that they're going to bring some cases and not others Uh and um... texas didn't even really texas is the main plaintiff state didn't even really question that the administration is allowed to exercise that kind of discretion what this case was really about was about a list of benefits that come along with deferred action so it was about whether or not someone could be eligible for work authorization, whether they could be um, eligible for you know, certain other benefits like Social Security and Medicare. Mm-hmm. And when you go through our immigration law, I mean, some, in some cases, like with Social Security and Medicare, it states explicitly that the administration has the power to grant those benefits to immigrants. And in other cases, there's just a law, there, there are regulations that are longstanding saying that the administration can do this, and those regulations have been ratified by Congress and other laws. So it's, this shouldn't have been a hard case. You, you know, the fact that there were dissents, or, you know, that there, there was four to four, mm-hmm. and the fact that the, the court split entirely on party lines, you know, I think look suspicious, you know, and it makes me worry that the court may have had its political lens on here because the law was, pre- was pretty clear.
1: No, not this court, not this Supreme Court. Have there a uh, political lens? No, impossible. I know that the uh, plaintiffs did sort of shop around to get a a trial judge Uh, who is not uh, particularly uh, uh, lovable to immigrants, and that looks like it paid off at least after the death of Antonin Scalia because, you know, with a a tied court, it's the lower court's ruling that uh, carries the day, at least for now. Uh, Before we go to the other case, Ian, uh, how much is Obama to blame in some fashion here? You know, he spent years saying he did not have the executive authority to do what he eventually did do and what has now been struck down, essentially, by the Supreme Court, are his own actions uh, d- d- to blame here to some extent? Did they come into, uh, into the oral arguments in this case? Um,
4: I don't recall them coming up at oral argument, but, mm-hmm. I mean, the real answer to that is who knows? Because that's part of the problem with when you have these four-to-four splits and you get a one-sentence order, is no one has any idea. Why the court did what it did? I mean, like I said, like one issue that came up at oral argument is that Texas objected to the fact that um, the administration used two words in a memo: lawful status. And there was actually a, a whole conversation between some of the justices and uh, Texas's lawyer about whether the administration could fix all of these problems and just make make the programs legal if they just excise those two words from the memo um, so maybe that's what was on the justice's heads mm. and maybe if they had written an opinion then you know we would know that the administration would know it, and they just reissue the memo without those two words but you know because there's no opinion we are, you know, we have no way of knowing what what caused this decision to come down the way it
1: did. I gotcha. All right, uh, and uh, I suspect we will be revisiting this case again because uh, we've got this tie, and it, it, so it's not really particularly binding. It's gonna be up to whoever the next president is and whoever the next court is to go through all of this again. Now, speaking of going through all of this again, uh, this other case, a second case uh, that came down today, this affirmative action case, Fisher v. University. Mm-hmm. Of Austin, the uh, ruling was uh, a surprise to a lot of people, including you. You uh, wrote that it was yep. a big surprise over a thing. Progress. Tell us about this case and how it came down. Uh, that surprised you today.
4: Sure. So I mean, this was a challenge to the affirmative action program at Texas, at the University of Texas, which is actually fairly modest. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, if you know, part partially because it's such a modest affirmative action program, if the Supreme Court had struck this program down. Then it probably would have meant that affirmative action in college admissions was dead. And you know, people had thought that affirmative action was on a deathbed for a really long time. You know, the the, the last major affirmative action case the Supreme Court heard was in two thousand three. Mm-hmm. There were four dissents. One of them was Justice Kennedy, who's the only thing approaching a swing vote on race on this Supreme Court. And so after. Justice O'Connor, who wrote that 2003 decision, was, a, was replaced by the super conservative Justice Alito, I think that everyone thought it meant that affirmative action isn't going to be around very long. Mm-hmm. And yet it had a series of near-death experiences. This case has actually been up to the Supreme Court one other time, um, and the court surprised everyone that time by saying, oh, no, we're not going to kill it now, we're going to send it down to the lower court to take another look. And then here it is, this case has been kicking around for something like eight years, and they finally get around to deciding it, and surprise, they don't strike down the program. Um, There was a lot of law, a lot of language in the opinion that I think is going to give a lot of heartburn to people who support affirmative action, but the punchline is that affirmative action lives to see another day.
1: And uh, in this case, just to be specific, uh, three quarters of, seventy-five uh, percent or so of the uh, the, uh, the students at UT, this was specifically, I guess, UT Austin, are are granted admission based on their based on their grades in their high schools. If right. they're the top ten in their high schools, no matter what that high school is, and so that co- sort of covers people across the board, across all races. the The question here was about. That uh, the other twenty-five percent, and if race could be used, uh, you know, to determine admissions there. Uh, but uh, what what about the, the issue of legacies? Did that come mm-hmm. up at all? Legacy admission preferences uh, w- was that a matter in this case? And are those uh, still l- legal? I mean, we hear so much about you know race-based yeah. admission, but never about legacy admissions. Right. Which, you know, the for people who don't know, that's the idea that families of alums get preference and thus keeping, you know, historic racial imbalances in place. Is that even a, an issue in these cases?
4: Yes. So, I mean, it, ironically, uh, the, the plaintiff in this case, Abigail Fisher, or as she's been labeled on Twitter, Becky with the bad grades, <laughs> yes. um, was a, a legacy at the University of Texas, and she did not get in. Um, so, but, you know, there's actually a really important difference to understand between legacy admissions and affirmative action. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there is an argument for legacy admissions. It's that you want your alumni to give your, give the school money, and they're more likely to do that if, like, if you let their kids in. I mean, that that's the argument for it. It has nothing to do with the quality of education and everything to do with the bottom line. Mm-hmm. The argument for affirmative action is more high-minded. The reason why affirmative action exists, and this is what the Supreme Court has said is the reason why, why it exists, is that everyone benefits from a racially diverse classroom. You know, whether you're white, whether you're black, whether you're Latino, whether you're Asian, you know, regardless of, of, of your racial background, a big part of what you get from, from an educational environment isn't what's in the textbook a big part of it is that you're learning how the world works. You're learning what it's like to interact with people who aren't like you. You're learning from their perspective. And in, that, in doing so, you're learning an important skill because if you don't encounter African-Americans or Latinos or Asians or people from whatever perspective when you're in college, you're going to go out into the professional world and encounter them, and you're going to be better at your job if you understand the perspective that race, um, you know, the, how race can color away, the mm-hmm. way that someone sees the world. Well, um, So that's, that's why affirmative action exists. And the Supreme Court today said, like, yeah, that's the legitimate thing. We should, you know, we should have a diverse environment so people can benefit from that diversity.
1: And yeah, and that's a civil rights consideration, which is why it's somewhat ironic here that uh, uh, that this challenge, if I understand it, is sort of these challenges uh, to affirmative action overall actually come as a a challenge under the Civil Rights Act prohibiting racial discrimination. Is that is the argument that affirmative action is uh, ironically enough that they're using the Civil Rights Act to argue this is essentially reverse discrimination? Uh, when you use Wait, these so under
4: the uh This was brought under the 14th Amendment, which is the, the constitutional bar on, on race discrimination. And, you know, and it goes back to a fight that has existed between the right and the left on issues of race, basically ever since the American right accepted that Brown v. Board was correctly decided. Um, and it's you know, a question about when the Constitution says that no one shall be denied the equal protection of the law. Does that mean that we have to shut our eyes to the existence of race and any law that is in any way race-conscious uh, must be thrown out because it's creating racial distinctions, and that's the thing that the Constitution forbids? Or does what that mean, or, or is what that means that, you know, we have a history of disadvantaging people, um, and we have to make sure that our, that our society and our government does not disadvantage people because of their race, and you know, depending on what your theory of equality is, it, it, it leads to a completely different worldview, and it leads to a different idea of, of how the wall should address the concept of race. You know, Chief Justice Roberts believes, you know, I don't think he's making it up. I don't think he's a closet white supremacist. You know, he he believes that the way to deal with the pro- with, with, with racial problems in this country. If you just act like race doesn't exist, it's, you (laughs) know, the Stephen Colbert is the Stephen Colbert solution. Right. And if you believe that, then I guess, um, you know, you you can't have affirmative action. (laughs) But if you believe that, you know, we gain more as a society when we are aware of how race colors the way that everyone looks at the world, um, you know, then... The decision that the court handed down today
1: makes a lot more sense. Ian, I know you got a, I know you got a run, and uh, I had wanted to ask you about uh, Scalia and his comments at the oral uh, arguments before he ended up dying. We'll we'll play that later, but very quickly before you go, this decision is very narrow. It allows Texas UT to continue their policy. It allows other schools to continue for now their affirmative action policies, but this is expected to be uh, brought again by by the same folks against other schools until they get. Uh, until they're able to put the nail in the coffin?
4: Yeah, I mean, my my biggest concern, if I was a university general counsel reading this opinion, is that it doesn't doesn't just say that universities have an obligation to do a whole lot of investigating to make sure that there's no way to achieve diversity with a race-neutral method before they use more race-conscious methods. It then says that they're under a continuing obligation to, to constantly check their work and mm-hmm. make sure that the race-conscious methods that they're engaged in um, are, uh, are still needed. Mm-hmm. And the problem with this, like, it, it sets up the possibility of never-ending litigation, yeah. where I fear that groups are going to file harassment suits against universities until they decide they can't afford the expense of defending their affirmative action program.
1: Yeah. You bet they are. Uh, these are going We're going to see one case after another here. And and the guy who brought this one was also the guy who helped strike down the Voting Rights Act a couple of years ago. So, uh, yeah, we're going to see more of this. Uh, but for now, at least a good uh, decision as well, a surprising decision. Good news for uh, affirmative action advocates. Uh, thanks to uh, Justice Kennedy, I guess, uh, flipping on this one. Uh, and uh, ultimately the, the death of Scalia. Uh, Ian Milheiser, thank you for uh, informing us as ever on these. You can uh, check out his work at thinkprogress.org and on the Twitters at I Milhiser. Uh His book is Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Ian, uh, thank you, sir. I, I suspect we'll, we'll talk to you soon. More decisions are coming. <laughs> All right, thank you. Thanks, Ian. Yeah, Desi Doyen, this is uh this is your old school. Yes UT, it is. Austin. Yes it is. Uh so most of the school allows uh most of the school
2: Yes, a vast majority of the entrants every single year are kids who have been in the top ten percent of their high school class. That takes up I, I forget how much the percentage is, but mm-hmm. it's huge. It's like seventy five percent. So it's a very competitive school to get into for those remaining slots. With that competition, um they have to figure out a way to uh to, to admit these students and and, and you know, it, mm-hmm. I think it's rather surprising because it was a pretty mild standard. But isn't well, there a group that continues to bring these cases?
1: Oh yeah. The, well, the, the ones who brought this case, as I as I noted, were, uh, was the the same group that struck down the Voting Rights Act in uh, Shelby. Uh, Shelby County in 2013 they have a thing again, They, you know, like he said, he he referred to the Stephen Colbert rule, I, I see no race, I don't see white, I don't see black that's the way that they'd like to proceed that's the way Justice Roberts would like to proceed uh, and that's frankly, that's putting it nicely. If you look at what Scalia had to say during the oral arguments before he died, and I think we have that audio, but one of the reasons this was such a surprise was because Elena Kagan the uh, Obama uh, appointee to the Supreme Court, had recused herself from this particular case because she had worked on it while she was serving as Solicitor General in the Obama administration. So it was already uh, looking like affirmative action was in trouble in this case, uh, that it was you know, likely to lose, uh, let's see, what would it have been, uh, five to three with Kagan out, and then Scalia died, But then it was still thought it was likely going to lose four to three. Uh, Scalia was obviously no friend of uh, affirmative action. And what he said during the oral arguments before he died, obviously, uh, really was the big news headline after the oral arguments. Do we have that audio? Let's 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 play that because this is this is kind of remarkable. And to be fair, I guess he was quoting from a uh, an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief. Um, but it, uh, there was audible gasps in the, uh, in the courtroom when, when he made this, uh, this comment, uh, this question.
5: There are those who contend that it does not benefit African-Americans to, to get them into the University of Texas where they do not do well, uh, as opposed to having them go to a less uh, advanced school, a, less, a, a slower track school where they do well. I, one, one of the briefs uh, uh, pointed out that uh, that most of the most of the black uh, scientists in this country don't come from schools like the University of Texas. So the, this they, they court come from lesser schools where they do not feel uh, that they're uh, that they're being pushed ahead in in classes that are too too fast for them. This so, court, oh, I, you know, I'm I'm just not impressed by the fact that that the University of Texas may have fewer. Maybe it ought to have fewer. And maybe some, you know, when you take more, the number of blacks, really competent blacks, admitted to lesser schools, turns out to be less. And and I I don't think it 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 stands to reason that it's a good thing for the University of Texas to admit as many blacks as possible.
1: That was I I gotta tell. That's just amazing to me. That 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 was uh, uh, that was Antonin Scalia. Uh, during the oral arguments in this case Fisher V University of Austin which which had a, uh, a a good ruling today but f- those comments so I tried to be fair there I said that he was you know speaking about the uh the amicus th- brief. the amicus brief that it wasn't his opinion but if you listen to it it was his opinion he says I'm not convinced you know he starts out there are those who say uh, that black people just can't keep up with this uh you know this this school they need a slow track school, that these classes are too fast for them. He made it sound like it was uh, from the amicus brief, but then he says I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that this is the best thing for black people.
2: Yeah, that's called confirmation bias. When you seek out that information, that study or whatever, no no Mm -hmm. matter how random it might be or where it comes from, you seek out something that confirms your bias. I have a feeling that that is exactly what Scalia was doing. He clearly already had a bias against affirmative action.
1: It, it's like on Fox News when they when they when they do the old uh, well. Some say yes. your policy does X Y Z. Yes. Yeah, some say like the people on Fox News say it. Uh, just ask the question if you have a question. Uh, anyway, uh, so some good news uh, for now in the affirmative action case. Not good news in the immigration case, at least for those uh, uh, families who would like to stay together, even while you have the right wing trying to essentially break up families, send away parents, uh, you know, their children are going to stay here, they're going to break up, fa- uh, you know, parents, grandparents, send them home to wherever, send them home to countries that they haven't been in for 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, it's just appalling. But uh, in both of these cases, no firm decision. The, uh, the questions will continue at least until we get a ninth justice on the Supreme Court, because the Republicans aren't happy with breaking the uh, uh, the legislative branch of uh, of the government, they also have succeeded now in breaking the judicial branch as well, at least for now. All right, a quick break, and we're back with more broadcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Hang on. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to help keep us going. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy. Stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. Welcome back to another very busy day on the Bradcast, which continues now with our latest Green News report. In a momentous decision, Pacific Gas and Electric announced it will not pursue license renewal for the two reactors at the Diablo Canyon nuclear site near San Luis Obispo.
2: Lights out for the last nuclear power plant in California. Judge strikes down new rules for fracking on public lands. Study finds high levels of toxic chemicals in the bodies of people living near fracking sites. Plus, researchers in Iceland figure out how to turn carbon emissions into stone.
1: Really? Rock on! All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And
2: I'm Desi Doyen.
1: Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment.
2: It can get so hot, you can actually fry an egg right on the sidewalk. Yeah, that's how hot it.
1: Wait, why are we using eggs to tell temperature? <laughs> I don't understand this. Like, people in Africa are watching this going, we would never do that in Africa, huh? We don't do such things, and we don't like wasting food. And also, we don't have sidewalks. Yeah, that is part of it. (laughs) This is your Green News Report. Because we call them pavements, you racist. That's why. Okay, Desi Doyen, before you get to today's Green News Report, just a quick thanks to those who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to celebrate our 700th episode of the Green News Report the other day. Thank you to everyone who has done that. To those of you who haven't, what's the holdup? Now that it's our 701st episode, I guess it doesn't actually matter.
2: Well, here goes 701.
1: Get to it. The
2: last nuclear power plant in California, the Diablo Canyon nuclear generating station south of San Francisco, will be phased out by 2025 under a joint agreement announced on Tuesday between the plant owner, Pacific Gas and Electric, plus labor and environmental groups. It's primarily due to the plant's proximity to numerous earthquake fault lines of particular concern after the Fukushima nuclear plant disaster. pg e said it will replace the plant's 9% share of the state's electricity with renewable energy, but closing the plant won't help in the fight against global warming since it will be swapping one source. Of carbon free electricity for another rather than closing fossil fuel sources.
1: Well, this is very cool news. No more nuclear plants in California once this shuts down. Of course, the shutdown of these plants takes. Um, how long?
2: Decades and billions.
1: Decades and billions. So even when we shut down these nuclear plants, we are still stuck with them forever.
2: That's true. Plus, some environmentalists are concerned about closing down nuclear generating stations because they believe that we won't be able to cut carbon emissions fast enough to avoid catastrophic climate change without using nuclear energy.
1: Silly environmentalists.
2: Two developments related to fracking. A new study has detected high levels of toxic chemicals used in fracking in the bodies of people living in heavily fracked Pavilion, Wyoming. While other studies have focused on water pollution impacts of fracking, this was the first study to analyze fracking air pollution impacts, studying residents who live nearby, finding that they have a higher amount of eight toxic chemicals, Mm. including benzene and other carcinogens, in their urine than the general population. In a setback for the Obama administration, a federal judge this week struck down new federal rules proposed to regulate the controversial natural gas drilling technique on the grounds that the Interior Department does not have the authority to regulate fracking on public lands. Neither does the EPA for that matter. That's thanks to a special carve-out for the fracking industry in the 2005 Safe Drinking Water Act passed during the Bush administration in which the Republican majority in Congress explicitly excluded hydraulic fracturing operations on public lands from federal regulation. California has 66 million dead trees. That's according to a new assessment by the U.S. Forest Service this week. It's a bad sign for a state already mired in an epic five-year drought and already battling an intense and early wildfire season. The Forest Service blames the historic tree die-off on severe drought, a dramatic rise in bark beetle infestation, and overall hotter temperatures thanks to global warming. In a statement, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack, who over seized the Forest Service, again urged Congress to please increase the Forest Service firefighting budget as he has requested every summer since taking office. Finally, researchers in Iceland have found a new way of tackling climate change by storing carbon dioxide emissions underground where it turns to stone. Literally. Turns out that CO2 dissolved in water reacts chemically with a specific type of volcanic rock called basalt, of which Iceland has plenty. The CO2 reacts with the basalt to form carbonate minerals, literally mineralizing into limestone in about two years. Now, this is only a pilot project, and it's expensive and requires water and volcanic rock. But if it can be scaled up, it could be a breakthrough solution to capturing carbon emissions.
1: Thank you, Desi Doyen. You are the basalt of the Earth. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman.
2: And I'm Desi Doyan. And
1: this has been your Green News Report. Thank you very much, our producer, Desi Doya, and also my thanks to Ian Milheiser of Think Progress and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com or over at iTunes, where we hope you'll give us a good review. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find me and follow me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.